this was Thanksgiving week, and so what I'm going to talk to you about is gratitude. And I'm going to talk about it from two perspectives. I'm going to talk about it from a Musar perspective. And for those of you who have been through the Musar course, one of the things that you may remember is gratitude is the second of the soul traits that they talk about. First one is humility. And right after that is gratitude. That's how important it is. And then the other way I'm going to talk about it is from Scripture. Obviously, they're very compatible, but they're slightly different focus. One of the things that I've been saying sort of on and off for several weeks, talking about the care of the soul and the idea that your soul is something that is you, but you don't have complete access to metaphor that the Jews use is you married the daughter of the king. So she lives with you, but she talks to her father. And you're not entirely privy to all those conversations. But one of the things about the soul is you can damage it. So your behavior can damage your soul. And if you do that, it turns out that God is the only one who can repair it. So one of the things that Musar does is gives you instructions, ideas, exercises, and so forth to avoid damaging your own soul so that you don't have to go back and get it repaired periodically. And gratitude is a big part of that. One of the things that gratitude does is it protects you from envy, self-pity, malice, and covetousness. I'll explain how that works in a few minutes, especially when we get to the scriptural part, because the scripture talks about that as well. I looked up gratitude on the internet. Whenever I'm talking about a word, I like to get a really precise definition. And when I look up the definition of a word, usually the dictionary definition is in the first or the second search result. It wasn't with gratitude. All sorts of self-help, psychological pop culture, it's a big deal. And the actual dictionary definition was sort of down there. So the idea of gratitude being a big deal, even in the secular society, is very interesting. I wasn't actually expecting that. Gratitude is good for you. There was a study years and years ago of a group of nuns. I think you may have all heard this. I think the study started in the 40s. And they took a group of young nuns and they talked to them and they asked them questions and did questionnaires and so forth. And they tracked them through their lives. And the nice thing about a group of nuns is they sort of move in a pod. And you've got similar experiences, similar lifestyles. So a whole lot of variables drop away, which is one of the things that makes them nice for study. And what they discovered is when these group of nuns was old, like in their 70s or so forth, what they found is that the group who had started the survey talking about gratitude to God, gratitude for what they were doing, gratitude in general, at the end lived longer, were more healthy, were more spiritually satisfied than the ones who were focused on something else. And by the way, lots of secular psychological studies find the same thing. You've heard me use the phrase timtum halev. For those of you who haven't, it's Hebrew, and what it means is a stopped-up heart. 
Usually I talk about Tim Tum Ha Lev in the context of generosity. In other words, what you want to do is you want to have an open and flowing heart and you want to be generous. Well, one of the things that keeps your heart from getting stopped up is gratitude. So if you go through your life grateful, it prevents your heart from being stopped. And I will give you a quote from Danny Moranis who wrote the Musar book. It says, giving thanks can become a flow that waters the fields of life. I thought that was really a nice turn of phrase. And it goes with this idea of not having a stopped up heart. So if you develop a habit of being grateful, what it does is it opens your heart up and your heart can then be this river of living water that the scripture talks about. And the source of that is gratitude. Now, one of the things the Musar book talks about is gratitude for things or gratitude to things, which seems odd. Talks about a rabbi who bought a new pair of shoes. And what he did then is he took his old pair of shoes and wrapped them up very neatly and put them in the trash bin and he thanked that pair of shoes for the faithful service that it had given him all of his life, or as long as he owned the shoes anyway. So the idea is looking around and seeing the benefits in life that you didn't cause. One of the things my wife and I do, we have a couple of very old vehicles. I think my truck is a 2002 and Kay's car is a 2003. And one of the things we do as we get into those cars is, wow, this has been a really faithful vehicle. And they have. They've been extremely faithful. They still run very well, still in good shape, nothing wrong with them. I can't think of a really good reason why I want another one. We're very happy. But one of the things that we consciously do when we get into them and we're driving around is we'll say, this has been a very faithful car or this has been a very faithful truck. God really blessed us when he guided us to purchase these because they've been very faithful. And I firmly believe if God can heal the human body as complex as it is, a car or a truck is a piece of cake. And I firmly believe that our thankful and grateful attitude to these inanimate machines opens up God's grace and those cars and trucks have operated faithfully for years and they will continue to do so and that's a function of gratitude now the thing about gratitude is gratitude is not you so gratitude requires something outside of you that has done or been something that has benefited you so what gratitude does is it shifts your focus from me to something else or someone else. And if a car or a truck or a pair of shoes can be faithful, how much more a person who has free will and chooses therefore to do something good to you? How much more should you thank a person? If you look, as we do, as you look at your car and you're thankful for this car, you're thankful to the car because of its faithfulness. 
How much more then should you be grateful to somebody who has free will and can choose not to help you? One of the things that I do, and I don't know who I heard it from first, it wasn't original with me, but you guys have known me, some of you, for more than 20 years. What do I always say when you come up and ask me how I am? I'm blessed. Now, one of the things that happens is I have met people who have taken that as an expression of pride. I'm blessed. You're not. But I will tell you, it is not an expression of pride. It's an expression of gratitude. What I'm doing with that expression is I am reminding myself and anybody else who will listen that I'm in God's hands. And God has dealt well with me. So what I'm doing when I say I'm blessed is I'm saying I am grateful for the fact that God has kept me in his hands. He has used me in his kingdom. He has blessed my socks off. And it isn't due to any special merit of mine. It's a gift from God. But as I said, I find people who, when they hear that, they sort of go like, you know, you arrogant so-and-so, what do you mean? You're blessed. Like, we're not? And understand that if you decide to adopt something like that, which I recommend, by the way, if you decide to adopt something like that, a phrase, a saying, in fact, Dave Ramsey, who does Christian finances, and when somebody asks him how he is, he says, better than I deserve, which again is an expression of gratitude. And if you go through life with expressions of gratitude always on your lips, what I find and what secular psychology and everything else finds is the blessings will in fact accumulate if you get in the habit of saying that you are blessed or saying that you are being treated by God far better than you deserve or whatever works for you. But this idea of having gratitude on your lips at all times, I don't know how to say this in a non-theological way, but it attracts more blessings. It just does. And again, going back to my silly little example of our cars, I am firmly convinced that our attitude toward our cars (laughs) kept those things running for years beyond what they were perhaps designed for. One other thing before I go, on to the scriptural part. Gratitude takes your focus off of the world. Now, one of the things that I am fond of saying is there is no limit to what you lack. No matter how much you have, there's way more that you don't have. And that's always the case. It's always going to be the case. So if you look at and focus at what you don't have and perhaps what somebody else has that you don't have, what that does is it takes your focus off of gratitude and God and puts it on the world and that gives place to envy, place to bitterness. How many of you have paid any attention to our society over the last several years? How much discourse is involved with You've got more than I have, and it's not fair. Variations on that theme. That's a focus on the world. That's a focus on what you don't have. 
And it has been my observation that the people who are focused that way are angry, bitter, miserable, and nasty to be around. Why would you want to be that way? And gratitude is the antidote to that. Now there's a Hebrew phrase from the Musar course, Hakarat Hatov, which means look for the good. So in every situation, especially in situations which are not going the way you hope they would go, look for the good. And again, there's lots and lots of stories about this. For example, from the Musar book, there was a family in Western Russia and they got exiled to Siberia, which is not a desirable place, okay? Being exiled to Siberia in Russia is not a good deal. But what it did is it got them out of the way of the invading German army in World War II. So being exiled to Siberia is the reason that they didn't get sent to a death camp during World War II. Now, one of the things the Musar book does, and the Bible does as well, is it tells you that your perspective is limited. Your perspective is limited in time, because you can only look back, you can't look forward, you don't know what's coming, and your perspective is limited in space, because you've got limited bandwidth. There's only so much stuff that you can pay attention to. God's perspective, obviously, is very different than ours. And Paul encapsulates that in Romans. And the rabbis say the same thing, but they don't quote Romans, okay? <laughs> but it's the same concept. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what Paul is saying and what the Musar rabbis are saying is always in every situation look for the good because you can find some. And if you develop the habit of looking for the good even when things are not going the way you hope they would go, what that does is it lets your heart open up and flow and it lets you trust God. Again, example of the rabbinic family that got exiled to Siberia. Everybody involved at that time thought that this was a complete disaster. Another example, again from the Musar book. A guy gets sent to a concentration camp during World War II. And at the end of World War II, he can't come to the United States for some reason, so he goes to South America. And by the time he is able to get from South America to the United States where he wants to go, he has become a very wealthy man. And the way he became wealthy is he opened a soap factory because the thing that they had used him for in the concentration camp was to make soap. So we learned how to make soap in the concentration camp. After the war, goes to South America, opens a soap factory, becomes very wealthy, and by the time he does get to the United States, he's well set up. So again, hakarat hatol, always look for the good. All right, now I'm going to shift focus here, and I'm going to bring it around from another perspective. Leviticus 19, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. What in the world does that have to do with gratitude? Well, it turns out a lot. Because Paul, in Ephesians, basically does a riff on that piece of scripture. He doesn't quote it per se, but if you read Ephesians starting in chapter 5, what you find is Paul is talking about the same thing, and he's expanding on it. So let's read Paul, and then we'll come back and talk about it. So Paul in Ephesians 5. Therefore be imitators of God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. See what's going on here? Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You shall revere your father and your mother. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Ding, ding, ding. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes to the sons of disobedience. Now the place I want to talk about just for a minute is Paul equates covetousness as being an idolater. So back to Leviticus. Keep these in your mind. God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Paul says, Be imitators of God. Same concept. And then, Revere your father and your mother. We'll come back and talk about that. Keep my Sabbaths. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. Notice there's two things going on there. Thing number one is turning to idols, and then thing number two is making yourself images of cast metal. Those are two different things. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians is covetousness is idolatry. So when God says, don't turn to idols, what he's talking about is the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. And oh, by the way, you can also make metal images. But the metal image is something that flows from an idolatrous heart. So if you are idolatrous, which is to say covetous, the step toward making a metal image is a fairly small move. And so what Paul is saying is, guard yourself from all of these things, and instead, let there be thanksgiving. What Paul is talking about is thanksgiving being the antidote or the vaccine, if you will, against idolatry. Does that so make sense? If you look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, what you find is that it is in fact a riff on Leviticus 19. It talks about the same subjects and he expands on them.
And the thing that Moses doesn't mention in Leviticus, he doesn't talk about gratitude. Instead, what he does is he talks about idolatry. And why would you be interested in idolatry? Because you think an idol can give you something that God has said you shouldn't have. It starts with the tree in the garden. God says you shouldn't have that. What do we do? Woo, I want one of those. Remember, there's no limit to what you lack. So what Paul and God are both saying is thankfulness is an antidote to that. Now, the other thing that's going on here back in Leviticus, go back and read that again. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. Well, what does that have to do with anything? That has to do with authority. You have God, you have mother and father, and then you have children. So it's the job of mother and father to pass on a reverence for authority and a respect for authority to their children. And with that, you then come to the place where gratitude becomes natural. You take your kids. You as parents, try and do good for your kids. Occasionally you will correct them, which is never fun. That's one of the things about authority is that occasionally it makes you do stuff you don't want to do. That's sort of the nature of authority. It has the ability and the duty occasionally to make you do stuff you don't want to do. But the idea here is it's training you to be someone who is pleasing to God. In other words, the parents are transitory to God. They're a conductor between kids and God. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them so that they don't have idolatry planted in their hearts. And remember, idolatry is covetousness. So, one of the things that being in relation to God does is it gives your life meaning. Because what you see is that you are the creation of somebody, someone, who put you here for a reason, who wanted you to be here, and who loves you. That gives your life meaning. One of the things I have again observed as you go back to watching the news feeds is there's a whole bunch of young people who don't have any meaning in their life. They're angry. They're bitter. They don't have any transcendent meaning. Now, one of the things it says in Ecclesiastes is God has put eternity into our hearts. And what that means is we limited human beings have this ability to recognize and this desire to recognize that there is something out there beyond what we can see, hear, touch, taste, and feel. That's built into us. God made us that way. So if you cut yourself off from that, what that means is that thing inside of you has got no place to focus. You know that there should be some meaning to your life, but you haven't got anything to hang it on. So what we see is lots and lots of people who have no place to hang this 
place for eternity that God has built into everyone. And they're angry, they're bitter, they're covetous, they're ungrateful, they're revilers of parents. You know, I could read you Romans 1. Paul has got a whole list of what these people are. And it all goes back to they have no outlet for gratitude. Except secular stuff. And don't get me wrong, secular gratitude is just fine. It's better than no gratitude at all. But it is not the same as the chain that God or Moses is talking about here in Leviticus. God, parents, gratitude, no idolatry. And Paul, as I say, in his riff, puts the thankfulness in there, which is the thing that ties it all together. It's gratitude. That's why it's the second thing you study in Musar. That's why the secular world is so obsessed with it, even though they often don't have any idea what the focus should be. Their focus is horizontal. And again, gratitude horizontally is wonderful. I'm not knocking it. But it's only part of the picture. The thing that opens up your heart is gratitude vertically. This is a time to focus on it. And by the way, that's why all the politicians are trying to shut down Thanksgiving and trying to shut down Christmas. Now, we don't do Christmas because we think they got the date wrong. And as Kay said in her prayer, the fact that they've got the date wrong doesn't mean that their heart is wrong. But that's why the politicians right now are trying to shut down Thanksgiving and Christmas is because those are the things that bring you back and anchor you to God and recognize that there is something to be grateful for that is not society, the government, your neighbor, and all those kinds of things. Although, again, gratitude horizontally is just fine. But gratitude vertically is the thing that sets it all up.